Welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, we're getting into one hell of a topic, the Michael Jackson allegations. Like many people, I had accepted the narrative of Jackson being a predator, but turns out there's a lot more to this than the salacious headlines, and the actual facts paint the picture of a man extorted and crucified because he was a total weirdo. As always, expect foul language, but we're also getting into child abuse allegations. While we do not get into the specific details of the alleged molestation, this can still be a hard topic for some listeners. So listen with care. Let's get ready for another human exception. I was having a talk with some friends of mine. They're two people I work closely with the gen stuff on. And one had mentioned that they purged a bunch of their favorite playlists as so many artists on those playlists had turned out to be abusers or shitty people in some way. They mentioned how they love Thriller, but listening to it just makes them feel guilty now. Another friend comes in talking about how a couple years back he dug into the court transcripts and history of every accusation against Michael Jackson and came out of it with a very firm opinion. He says his most controversial one that Michael Jackson is innocent. What are your opinions? Um, my opinion is whoever has this car alarm that keeps going off needs to get their shit together. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good, good and a valid opinion, but... <laughs> it's unrelated. It's just, I, like, every time I talk, I know you guys can hear the, the beeping, so... Yeah. I'm sure I could scrap most of it out of the audio. I always thought it was weird that he like and inv- I I thought it was weird that a grown man would have sleepovers with a child. Yes, it makes me uncomfortable. Period. Absolutely fair. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That yeah, I'm kind of on that same boat. And then some of the, granted, you may get into this, but some of the um the parents basically excusing that behavior, like them allowing those kids. I know a lot of them were like child stars, right, or somehow connected to that but i was just like what parrot would do that that's not appropriate <laughs> in any way shape or form yeah i i think it was the weirdness of it and his like his obsession with childhood in general mm-hmm. mm. and yep. the carousel and all of the stuff that was built on his estate that he specifically had there because he wanted it to be a happy place and i was like oh duh. you know nowadays we would be like get your ass to therapy go but it, yeah i that always seemed very um not of the norm for sure mm-hmm. i was never a michael jackson fan i don't, I don't know if nathan you wanted to say something because he may have been tainted by me already <laughs> uh no i mean like never really like i really tried not to think about it because there was and and you'll probably you'll probably get into this but like obviously um growing up as a jw and like the insistence of like jw's really piggybacking off of michael jackson as like 
uh, a way of like, um, as like affirmation. Um, I loved his music, um, as a kid, but then like every time it would be like, oh, well, even celebrities are JWs, I'd be like, mm, okay. So I really tried to stay away from a lot of a lot of it. And I like again, same same thought. I didn't have all of the information at the time of, you know, this is the <clears throat> you know, this is what's happening, but like the information that came out and that we were fed made things seem really sketchy. Like um Was and he I a think, GW? He was. Oh. He was raised in the JW. Yeah. Um, and so, like, it, it, some of that really kind of like tainted the the situation for me as well. To try and like, like I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not. Um, there are things that are coming out where, you know, people are saying that this happened. People are saying actually it was a totally normal experience. I was just hanging out with my friend. Um. Sure, and like I get it, like, like I, you know, maybe hung out with people that were like twice my age when I was like ten or whatever within the religion. It happened a lot. Um, like, did we we went camping together and stuff like that? And so I maybe looked at it and was like, uh, okay, the lines are a little bit like weird. So I really just wasn't sure what to believe, but the, in the context of like sexual abuse, it was like, okay, well, like if that was the reason for having them over, then that's totally wrong. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was, I haven't thought about it for a lot of years. Um, and when I did think about it, there was still that sort of cloud of unease and like um, trying to wrap my head around things as someone who's either still a JW or recently out. Um, so I don't know if my opinion on the matter <laughs> is really like all that clear or stable from that time before before all of this information yeah so yeah mm -hmm. yeah so like for me i never really was a michael jackson fan um and i don't remember a time where michael jackson wasn't accused as a child abuser like from my earliest regular legends mm -hmm. that's what i recall my dad wasn't really a fan i think he had like one album but like i don't remember even hearing any of that music and nor was really anyone else that i knew so i just kind of went with a social kind of narrative that was going around and didn't think much about it um, then 2019, the documentary Leaving Neverland dropped on HBO. The documentary talks about two men, James Safechuck and Wade Robson, who over the four hours elaborate in graphic detail the abuse done to them by Michael Jackson. Using this documentary from Oprah to Louis Thoreau, and I have to admit it was really compelling and it disturbed me in ways that very few true crime stories have. And that sold it for me that Michael Jackson was an abuser. I don't know if, did you guys ever watch that documentary? No. Yes. You watched it, Hallie? Yeah. A long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's pretty like. It's, it's rough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's something that I, def you definitely wasn't, 
I don't think most people could stomach it in one sitting. I certainly couldn't. And I remember just very starkly one of the shots. I can't remember if they were in a dark room or they had dark lighting behind them. It's been a long time, but at the two men sitting together. Am I right on that or am I pulling that out of my ass? Yeah, no, I think there's an interview of them sitting together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And just very, very graphic, very upsetting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I think I shut it off and uh, never went back to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Because <laughs> it was just too much. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, like, I was like, okay, well, that's it. Michael Jackson is abuser, whatever. Sure. Carry on with my life. Um, but I know my friend, and he's a huge victim advocate. He's an abuse survivor himself and a true crime fanatic. And over the years, we've discussed dozens of cases and some very morally complex and dubious ones. Never had I seen him like come out with an opinion that was so strong and was so incredibly contrary to my own. So I knew that there had to be a reason that he believed this, so I asked him for his perspective. He then provided me a three-hour-long podcast called Reason Bound, Pirates in Neverland, the Michael Jackson allegations, which set me off on an unexpected journey. So I've spent the last two weeks watching every documentary I could find, uh, reading every legitimate news source, and testimony and deposition like find and listening to numerous podcasts i didn't have a horse in this race at all if and i had never been a fan i have nothing to prove that i've got no stakes in his guilt or innocence i just wanted to find out what the truth was if anything i have a negative association about jackson because my abusive ex was a huge fan because he grew up during that time but and then there's that. Of course, I'm a survivor of abuse, and I talk about my relationship a fair, fair amount on here, but I was also molested as a child. So I really want to understand, I really want people to understand here that I'm not a Jackson stan in the slightest. I see people that try to talk about Jackson's innocent getting written off as obsessive fans that are bland, blinded by his stardom and nostalgia, and that's just simply not me. Um, I came in just expecting to not really have my opinion swayed much, but well, here I am talking to you guys about it. And I feel like a changed person. Nearly everything that I thought I knew was true was not. And the allegations are flimsy at best and self-defeating at worst. So first thing that you'll find when you look into anything, Michael Jackson, um, and the allegations is that the opinions are incredibly polarizing. You're either he's an abuser and I won't hear anything to the contrary or he was framed, Me Too is total bullshit, stop trying to keep the cishet man down. <laughs> so I'm sure you guys have seen these arguments. Oh. <laughs> hey. Yeah. Not related to Jackson. <laughs> well, <laughs> not a great look when many of your most vocal advocates for anybody's innocence border on alt-right incels. So this is not to say that every advocate is this way. Um, most of them aren't. But the ones that are really vocal and screaming about it, yeah, they've got issues. <laughs> yeah. So, and I'll be honest, I was even hesitant to even propose this topic as it's so polarizing and people have rabid opinions about it one way or the other. I've seen the, the evisceration that happens to both sides and my gut reaction when my friend first told me this, and I considered myself a pretty open-minded person, is just like, should I even talk about it? <laughs> But, you know, turns out if you dig past the rabbit opinions, get the most clicks and past the media sensationalism, 
There are some incredibly well-researched and well-presented journalistic works out there by well-known authors and news organizations that just never got traction because no one wanted to hear it. I watched, read, and listened to everything that I could find, and of course it'll all be in the show notes, but uh, one podcast in particular that I praise above all outs and is the most thorough and unbiased account I found is a show called Michael Jackson, A Case for Innocence Podcast. At this point, the show is 24 episodes, each an hour long, and I listened to all of them last weekend. The show was presented by a mother and daughter, and this all began because in 2019, the daughter was 11 and a massive fan of Michael Jackson. When, when leaving Neverland, the documentary dropped. Mom wasn't a Michael Jackson fan, but the sensationalism of the documentary spread far and wide, and everywhere she turned, she saw condemnations of Michael Jackson. So, she, so Mom knew that she needed to look into this, because if this man was truly a predator, she would have to have a very hard conversation with her daughter. So Mom watched the documentary, but was left with many questions. Things didn't add up. The documentary, while giving significant attention to the survivors and their families, did not include any contrary opinions. She looked into this further, and the deeper she looked, the more she found. Over a six-month period, she read every page of the 13,000 pages of court transcripts. Every deposition, every account, from every side. She came out on the other side believing Jackson was innocent, much to her and her daughter's relief and, well, surprise on her behalf. But this didn't just wrap up this problem in a nice little bow. This, you know, they knew what they believed. They had sources of sight, but general public was completely sold on the predator narrative. This left her daughter frustrated when she wasn't allowed to put Michael Jackson as her favorite musician on an educational website, and when her own peers started to criticize her taste as these opinions filtered down to the children. She knew he was innocent, but how do you explain that concisely? How do you present all that evidence? And this is when mom decided to make the podcast, something her daughter could link to when someone criticized her about her favorite musician. Mom completed her research, wrote up the script for the show, and by this point her daughter was old enough to participate and wanted to, so they did the show together. So now the show is 24 hours to go through every detail <laughs> to explain all the information. We don't have that kind of time, and I wouldn't dare try because they did such a good job of it I couldn't even bother comparing. So if you want every fact, obviously check out that documentary and all the links that I'll provide. But for today, I'm just going to give you a big basic overview, which hopefully will be enough to at least entice you to look into this yourself. So if you're like me, you probably don't know a whole lot about Michael Jackson. Most of us millennials grew up after his peak fame, or at least his fame for his art. You probably have heard all sorts mm -hmm. of rumors that he bleached his skin because he hated being black, that Lisa Marie Presley was his beard, and he paid off the tractors to shut them up. Like the, the media. And the nose job. <laughs> and the nose jobs yeah. and the plastic surgery and everything. Right. We'll get to that, obviously. Um, I'm not going to go super in-depth into his history, because, again, we don't have time, but there's a couple things you should know. Um, he was born August 29th, 1958. He was the eighth of ten children. His family were Jehovah's Witnesses. He was practically born into celebrity, as in 1964, at age five, his father, Joseph Jackson, put him in a band with his brothers known as the Jackson Brothers. At age five. So, which on the surface can, sounds kind of fun, you know, making music with your family, but was actually quite horribly, because... Joseph Jack Jackson's managerial style was uh, to verbal abuse and a leather belt. His father and brothers repeatedly mocked Michael Jackson's appearance, calling him fat nose. While the boys were rehearsing, Joseph Jackson would sit in a chair watching with his belt in his hand, ready to punish them for any mistake, any misstep. Oh, shit. Yeah. 
So Michael, Michael Jackson's mother says that at the time, whipping, as she called it, was a common discipline for children and wasn't considered abuse. Michael Jackson's older siblings say that it was just discipline and kept them in line and out of trouble. But Michael Jackson was six, and today we'd very much consider that abuse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. He became very isolated due to this. Being a JW, he's really only supposed to associate with other JWs. Being in a band, one that his dad wanted to make famous, meant that all of his free time was spent practicing or performing. And because of all this, Michael didn't have much of a childhood. The isolation and father's abuse made him incredibly socially awkward and lonely. He had almost no friends, as he didn't have much time to make them. He became very self-conscious about his appearance, which just got worse when he hit his teens and had horrible acne, and very shy and introverted. It's reported that since he didn't have time to make friends, it was common that when he actually got free time, he'd go to the corner store, buy a bunch of candy, and then go to where the kids were hanging out and playing and offer them candy so that he could hang out with them. Oh, jeez. He reports, like, that, you know, sometimes they'd be recording in the studio and there'd be kids playing in the park across the way, playing baseball, and he so badly wanted to play that he'd cry, but he wasn't allowed to because he had to practice. So... Yeah, a year later, Michael Jackson's voice and dance talent would get recognized, and he became the band's lead vocalist, and the name would change to Jackson 5. By 1966, they were touring, Michael Jackson only being 8. In 1968, they released their first single, and in 1969, they were picked up by Motown Records. By 1970, at only 12 years old, Michael Jackson would have his first chart topper, Want You Back, skyrocketed to number 1, and then by 1972, Michael Jackson was recording his own solo albums. 79, his fifth solo album, Off the Wall, is what really established him as a solo artist. With his first big solo hits like Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, his album marked his move away from this bubblegum pop image with the Jackson 5 to his edgier and more complex image that would then become the king of pop that we know today. By 1980, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame as part of the Jackson 5, and by 84, he was inducted for his own solo works and won his first Grammy in 81. Michael became one of the most iconic performers of our time, launching into stardom unlike anyone before him, drawing the awe and attention of musicians like Elvis Presley, The Beatles, Freddie Mercury, and Mick Jagger. Everyone knew him, everyone wanted to work with him, and everyone who didn't know him wanted to know him. Yet despite all of his fame and popularity, he was very, un very self-conscious, unhappy, and lonely. I've got two quotes here from 1980 from him. So, quote, even at home, I'm lonely. I sit in my room sometimes and cry. It's so hard to make friends, and there are some things you can't talk to your parents or family about. I sometimes walk around the neighborhood at night, just hoping to find someone to talk to, but then I just end up coming home. Oh. Another quote, I just don't feel like it's time for me to move away from home yet. I've if I move now, I die of loneliness. Most people who move out go to discos every night. They party every night. They invite friends over, and I just don't do any of those things. One thing, like, his dad will say, responding to some of his allegations later, is like, oh, he had friends. He had his brothers. <laughs> Which reminds oh, me yeah. so much of a friend that we have um, who was in a family of, like, six other brothers. He um, was Kurdish, so, like, they were, fr they were from Kurdistan. So, like, they... There was a cultural issues with that as well, but you know, whenever he wanted to go hang out with friends, his friends and stuff, like his dad's like, you don't have, you don't, you don't need friends. You have, you have family because our cousins all live in the neighborhood and everything. But yeah. he was gay, and his family didn't know that yet. And like, obviously, he couldn't really tell his family, and it was hard to have those conversations with people that don't really relate. So that's what I kept thinking about when I was reading this, is just because 
that was very hard for him growing up. So I can only imagine what it was like for Michael Jackson. Who couldn't be in normal anywhere because he was Michael Jackson. Right? <laughs> Before he even knew who he really was, people knew who he, knew who he was. He, he had to be a, that symbol from a very young age. So his rise to fame has filled, fulfilled his, his passion for performing. And not just that, enabled him to get away from his abusive father and the messy, complex relationship with his family and stand on his own. Despite being considered a sex symbol in his provocative dancing and music, everyone that knew Michael said the same thing, that he was just a kid inside. Michael wasn't performing or writing music. His favorite things to do were play video games, read, and eat popcorn, and watch movies. Michael was making more money than any musician, musician ever had, to a point that his highest album royalties he achieved was reaching a payout of $2 per album sale. Which was like wild like you know most people like he, they mentioned when he first started uh, the jacksons like he got 0.06 percent or something of album record sales wow. but now two dollars per album sale that's fucking bonkers yeah that is wow and it's even more crazy when you think about it today since we don't really <laughs> there's not really album sales anymore oh. mm -hmm. that's at its peak thriller was selling 500,000 copies a week Wow. Selling 22 million copies worldwide in its first year, and ultimately selling $50 million worldwide. And we remained the number one in the Billboard charts for 37 weeks in America, and even more incredible, in the UK it stayed there for 168 weeks. Jesus. And while some of that money went to the building of his estate, Neverland Ranch, which he acquired in 1988, and included its own theme park and house theater, the grand majority of his money went to helping others. In 2000, he was awarded a Guinness World Record for supporting 39 charities, more than any other entertainer. He received numerous awards for his humanitarian efforts and performed in dozens of benefit concerts throughout his life. Either it was saving the rainforest, curing cancer, or supporting refugees of war, Michael was there promoting those causes and donating millions. He was one of the first massive black entertainers in the mainstream, mainstream bringing diversity to MTV lineup. When MTV first started, they never paid you for stuff. Like records gave them the music videos for as promotion for themselves. Like they they were doing the record companies a favor. But Thriller is the first thing that they ever paid for. Just that just shows how popular and just how wild it was. Like came to the point that with the Thriller album, it became like a staple because <laughs> everyone had a copy in their house. Yeah. Right. But yeah, and so like he was inspiring children of color around the world. They saw themselves in him. They saw that it was possible for them to do anything they wanted, anything they wanted. And Michael was always encouraging and did everything to give back to his fans. They always remained, remained humble, still being that shy kid inside, as evident in the few interviews that he granted. He was soft-spoken and kind. His introversion-driven reclusiveness, combined with the 90s musician playbook, which instructed you to always remain a constant mystery, made him all the more of an enigma to the general public. This would play a big part in the allegations to come. This was a time where if you wanted to find out about a musician, you, you, there had to be interviews. Like, so you'd had to catch them on TV or buy the magazine. So you can't just Google someone like we do these days. Right, right. But he did so few interviews that so much of what was published about him was speculation from tabloids. Above all, the thing Michael loved most in the world was helping children. Michael grieved his childhood that he never had, and if there's anything he could do to help a child have that, then he was there in an instant. People talk about Neverland, Neverland Ranch like it's this dank sex dungeon akin, akin to the Playboy Mansion, but that's not the case at all. 
The reason that Neverland Ranch Estate was so large and all these eccentric entertainments was because this was a place for children to be children. The place is a fucking theme park map. I will show her. I mean, it was just, he spent like millions and millions on this place. Yeah, I think it was 55 million in the end. God damn. Wow. And it was like 4,000 wow. square acres or something. It was like a ridiculous sized property. Holy crap. So yeah, and these are pictures from Neverland in the heyday. Like you see, there's people everywhere. So it's not like he was just... It was just him alone here. Like, there were always families, always kids there, like underprivileged kids or like kids from orphanage were allowed to come in the busfuls and like hang out for a day and get on these carnival rides and have candy and stuff that they normally don't have access to. Something that was super important to him. Here's a picture of Michael Jackson in a bumper car. Mm. So, the, the estate almost always had families staying there, whether it be his own cousins, nieces, and nephews, fans or families recovering from tragedy or illness, disadvantaged or orphaned children. He worked closely with charities like Make-A-Wish. And once you had an invite to Neverland, it was always open. You could return at any time whenever you wanted, whether or not Michael was there. The estate was fully staffed, said to have had 60 staff members at one point. And it was always busy. The entire house was open to the guests, with the exception of Michael's bedroom, unless he was there. One of the many salacious things that we hear about is children sleeping in Michael's bedroom. But the thing is, Michael's bedroom is a two-story suite. <laughs> Uh, it's a place he could get away from everyone and have everything he needed. So the, there's multiple beds and there was three bathrooms, apparently. It wasn't unusual for whole families to sleep there. And Michael was apparently quite happy sleeping on the floor, generously giving up the massive beds to his guests to staying, always believing that guests deserved the best. That's why we was raised. But it's true that he did share his bed with some of the younger friends. But what's not usually mentioned is as often the rest of the family was in the bed too or in the same room. Just a big sleepover. And it's not like the people he slept with were strangers. The permissions of the parents were always required, and these parents that had come to see Michael as family. Like, we all had those, like, family friends growing up that, you know, we called uncle or auntie or whatever that weren't related to us, but our parents trusted them explicitly, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and now we're those people. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Which is None wild of us to think kids. about. <laughs> now, um, I've got a quote here from Elizabeth Taylor, who's one of Michael's friends for pretty much their entire lives right. um she says i've been there when his nephews were there we were all there in the bed watching television there was nothing abnormal about it there was no touchy feely going on we laughed like children and we watched a lot of walt disney having spent a childhood so lonely and isolated michael cherished the relationships that he de developed with these families it gave him a taste of what he missed out on and made him feel less alone frequently becoming extensions of these families many of the mothers considering considering michael like another one of their children he also liked that he could give back to these families, enabling them to give their children the best and most magical life that they could ask for. It wasn't uncommon for him to take families on tour with him so that kids could experience what it's like to be on such a massive tour and see the shows up front and close and personal. And for him, it was a way for him to unwind after shows by coming home and having dinner with his family or watching TV or playing board games. It's why there are so many pictures of Michael Jackson with children at his side. Not pictured almost always is the mother just out of sight or a few paces behind. Yes, Michael had many friends that were children, but he was also friends with the entire family. He would maybe have dozens, he would have dozens, maybe even hundreds of surrogate families throughout his lifetime. It's a quote from Jackson. I never did birthdays or Christmases or sleepovers or none of that simple fun stuff in my childhood or going into a shopping market and just grabbing something off a counter. You know, all those simple things like going out in society and being normal. 
That's why when I befriend people, it's usually not celebrities. It's a simple, normal family somewhere. I want to know what their life is like. And it's this charity and the need for human connection that would ultimately lead to his downfall. Since 1993, there have been four main accusers that have attempted to take allegations to court. Jordan Chandler, Gavin Arvizo, Wade Robson, and James Safechuck. Prior to the first allegation in 1993, nothing of the sort had come out against Jackson, and it's not like he didn't have his detractors. No secret, and he's one of the most richest entertainers in the world, as he continually broke sales records and had concert tours selling out in minutes. And where there's money, there's grifters. Over the years, many tried to take advantage of Michael's kindness and generosity. His staff often considered him naive, always seeing the best in people, which frequently put him as a prime position to be a target. Even his hiring practices were, ba were more frequently based on a gut feeling than, you know, accreditations or references. I kind of like you. I'm going to hire you, which is always a great way to hire people, especially in that scenario, right? Hmm. Um, Michael was non-confrontational, preferring to avoid conflict whenever possible. But when he recognized that someone was using him, he was known to drop them completely without warning. This behavior would also get him into trouble. Prior to the child abuse allegations, disgruntled ex-employees were known to go to the tabloids for a quick buck, telling whatever juicy tidbit they could think of, whether it be true or not. And with all the mystery surrounding Michael, people ate those articles up. From stories about Michael seeking to buy the bones of the elephant man, Joseph Merrick, him sleeping in a hyperbaric chamber. In 1986, he had earned the tabloid title of Wacko Jacko, a name that he would come to despise. There's strong evidence that Michael himself planted some of the strange stories in an effort to increase the air of mystery around him, being a big fan of magicians and, cir and circus ringleaders, how, the craft how they craft illusions to wow and surprise the audience. It is said that this inspired him a lot, and there was a lot of the strange and exciting things that he did. But not once prior to the allegations were there claims from the ex-house staff or others of child abuse. But lo and behold, after the allegations, these same staff members came forward now attesting that they had seen something. So in 993, the first allegations about Jackson would come out. I originally wanted to kind of give you guys an overview of all the cases, but there's just so much. And the first one especially is incredibly important because everything that happens here becomes a playbook for anyone else that decides to accuse Jackson later. And so that I ended up just focusing on this one. On May 1992, Jackson was driving home down a busy, uh, or driving down a busy road and his van broke down. He was spotted by a woman whose husband worked at a car rental joint not far away. She offered to give him a ride to the rental place, but called ahead to let Dave Schwartz, the owner, know that they were coming. Schwartz called his wife, June Chandler, and told her to grab her 12-year-old, Jordan, and hurry down to the shop as Michael was coming. Jordan was a massive fan of Michael and was ecstatic to meet his hero. Afterwards, June gave Michael their home phone number and they parted ways. Michael went on tour, but he kept in contact with the Chandler family over the phone over the next several months. June, June Jordan and his half-sister Lily first visited Neverland on, in August 1992. From then, they became frequent guests at the ranch. They often accompanied Jackson on trips such as to Monaco and Las Vegas and Disney World. And June says that Jackson stayed at her house at least 30 times. I've got a picture of Michael and Jordan here. This is kind of the common picture that you would see of Jackson. Oh, here's Jackson and this kid. But this is the same day. This is mom and his sister there. So they were always cropped mm -hmm. these images very strategically to tell their narrative. Yeah, sure. Okay. 
So June had really appreciated having Michael in her and her son's life. Her husband at the time, Jay Schwartz, was a workaholic and almost never home. He was working like seven days a week. By the time that Jackson came into their lives, they considered themselves separated. Though they kept in contact, and sometimes he would stay over to the family to see his daughter and his stepson, Jordan. June had separated from, her, from Jordan's father, Evan Chandler, in 1985, when Jordan was five. June won primary custody, but was always pushing the two to spend time together, though Evan seemed to rarely make this a priority, devoting his time instead to writing a screenplay. This left Jordan without much of a father figure, and Jackson seemed to be filling that role. Jackson was happy to take the family on vacation to attend family dinners, to do the small things like watch movies, help with homework, play video games, and do the goofy fun things that kids like to do, like water gun fights. He was always gentle, kind, and patient, a refreshing change from her ex-husband Evan, who had a history of being quick to anger, and it's alleged that his fiery temper is being one of the reasons that they, they split. June, June was quoted saying, he's the kindest man I ever met about Michael. It was common when they visited Jackson for other children or families to be there. They mentioned meeting Brett Barnes, Macaulay Culkin, his siblings, his father, Frank, uh, Frank and Eddie Cassio, and Wade Robson and his mother Joy. June says that on the second or third time that they were visiting Neverland, that Jordan began to ask to sleep in Jackson's room. There were always other boys around and staying in Jackson's room, and Jordan wanted to join in on the sleepover, but June refused, not feeling comfortable. In March 1993, June, Jordan, Lily, and Jackson would stay in a hotel in Las Vegas. According to June's testimony in 2005, June and her children had adjoining rooms, and Jackson had his own suite. On the second night, Jackson and Jordan had stayed up late watching The Exorcist. Jordan became scared, so Michael said that he could stay with him. The two slept in the same bed, fully clothed in pajamas. The next morning, Jordan would tell his mom, who had gone to sleep before, the night, before they had the night before. June was upset, as previously Jordan had asked to sleep with Jackson and she had said no. She told Jordan that, she wasn't, that he wasn't to do that again and that he was to sleep in his own bed. Jordan lamented, saying that he wanted to stay with Jackson. June described him, described him being quite upset at being told no. Jordan would later then tell Jackson about the conversation and Jackson went and spoke with June. Jackson had become upset that June had implied that she didn't trust him. June explained, I've had males in my life that, you know, have disappointed me. How can I have you in my life and you're saying that you're going to take care of us, that you're so wonderful and everything's going to be okay? How am I supposed to trust that? And Jackson explained that he, you know, he just wanted the family to treat him like a regular person and that they were so important to him. That day, Michael and Jordan went shopping for a gift for June and found a bracelet at Cartier known as a love bracelet. Love bracelets are a kind of jewelry that closes with a screw-like cl uh, clasp, requiring a tool to put it on or take it off. Jackson wanted to give something to June that showed that he wasn't going anywhere, something permanent that would remind her how important she and her family were to him. Upon returning from Vegas, the family continued to spend a lot of time with Jackson. June observed when Jackson wasn't working, he was a very lonely person, and she speculated that that was why he connected with so many families, so that he would never have to be alone. She relented to Jordan's request to sleep with Jackson. Often, Jackson, often Jordan wasn't the only one. One or more of the other children from those families that had become close to Jackson were frequently there, and Jackson's room would just become a large slumber party. She says the first ten times that he stayed there, that she went and checked on them multiple times. She was always welcome to come hang out in the room with them, and the door was never locked. She could visit them at any time. She would sometimes watch TV in the room with them. After never coming across anything troubling, she began to let her guard down and check on them less frequently. In May 1993, Jackson had been invited to the awards show in Monaco and asked June's family if they wanted to join them, and they did. The trip was going, to be, was going well until Jordan and Jackson caught the flu and would end up being sequestered in their room. June and her daughter tried to enjoy the sights on their own, but June admits that she was a little bit uncomfortable with how much time the two were spending together. Back on American soil, things continued as, continued as they had. Jackson frequently staying with June or Jordan visiting them in Le or Jordan visiting them in Le Netherland. Well, Jen, June was 
a little concerned with how much Jordan always wanted to hang out with Jackson. Jordan wasn't missing any school and was still doing very well. And Jackson was always happy to help with homework and was always encouraging Jordan's studies and curiosities about the world. It also seemed, since Jackson had been around, that Jordan's father had become more interested in spending time with him, which was a nice change of pace, which would lead to a couple times where Jordan and Jackson stayed with Evan's family. Jordan remembers saying to Jackson, You're like Peter Pan. Everyone wants to be around you and spend 24 hours around you. Lily would, except she's, too, she's not old enough. In June 1993, June and her family had gone to New York to visit her brother. When she was planning the trip, Jackson mentioned that he had to go to New York for business around the time, and they arranged rooms for them at a hotel, telling her that he would join them later. Once Jackson arrived in New York, he hung out with the family regularly. One morning, June woke up and they found two broken lamps. Michael sheepishly tells her that he'd been practicing his karate moves for the kids and had accidentally kicked the lamps and breaking them. So, a story that Jordan and Lily would corroborate. Jackson said not to worry as he'd pay for them, obviously. I only bring these little moments up because, not just because they show the relationship with the family, but also these are the events that we twisted and used against Jackson later. So while June was very involved in Jordan's life, who wasn't was his birth father, Evan Chandler. Of being a big screenwriter in Hollywood to, to, to make his own movies or sell his stories, but his biggest claim to fame was in regards to a writing credit for him. For the, or sorry, for the film, Robin Hood, Men in Tights. At this point, Evan was three years, $68,000 behind on child support payments. And that wasn't the only debts that Evan owed. He had been promising his son a computer for his schoolwork and had, to get, and had offered to give him $5,000 for his help on the Robin Hood screenplay as, as Jordan had been the one that conceived of the idea. Evan was a dentist by trade, but has reported that he hated that work, which is why he moved to L.A. in hopes of finding his big break and was known to take on celebrities earning their loyalty by hooking them up with his anesthesiologist who provided prescription medications for non-dental reasons. As reported by Harry Fisher and numerous other patients, he had a history of brushes with the law and potential lawsuits over unnecessary dental work, and he somehow always managed to shimmy his way out of it. From Carrie Fisher's book, but getting back to that special medical access I mentioned earlier, I had this dentist at the time, Dr. Evan Chandler, who was a very strange character. He was what would be referred to as the dentist of the, to the stars. And as one of the people who would have unnecessary dental work done just for the morphine, this man was one of those people who could arrange such a welcome service. He referred his patients to a mobile anesthesiologist who would come into the office to put you out for the dental work. And as if that wasn't glorious enough, this anesthesiologist could also be easily and financially persuaded to come to your house to administer the morphine for your subsequent luxury pain relief. And I would extend my arms, veins akimbo, and say to the man, send me away, but don't send me too far. I love her so much. By 1993, Evan had remarried and had another family, which he reportedly didn't spend much time with either, always busy at the dental, at the dental office or sequestered away working on his next big script. But when he got word that Jordan had fostered a relationship with Michael Jackson, Evan's son became very interested in his son and taking June up on those opportunities to spend time with him. When Evan first heard about the close relationship between Jackson and Jordan, he told his ex-wife that this is wonderful and that Jordan would never have to worry about anything for the rest of his life. Evan would go with Jordan to Neverland and he suggested that Michael come visit him at his home which he did a handful of times, but Evan began to press pressure Michael to build himself a suite on their house. And when Michael said the zoning wouldn't allow that, Evan suggested that he just build, that Jackson build Evan in a whole new house. Evan always seemed to be asking Michael for something. So another quote from Carrie Fisher's book. Remember that dentist who sued Michael for molesting his kid? 
Yeah, that was my dentist, Evan Chandler, dentist to the stars, and the same Dr. Chandler, long before any lawsuit was brought, though not necessarily before it was contemplated, needed someone to brag about his son's burgeoning friendship with Michael Jackson. This was years before Michael had any of his own children. And so my dentist would go on and on about how much his son liked Michael Jackson, and more important, how much Michael Jackson liked his son. And the most disturbing thing that I remember him saying was, you know, my son is very good looking. Oh, my God. Now, I ask you, what father talks about his child this way? Well, maybe some do, but A, I don't know them, and B, they probably aren't raising an eyebrow, looking suggestive when they say it. Over the years, I've heard many proud fathers say, my son is great, or my kid is adorable, but this was the only time I've ever heard that particular boast. My son, unlike other average male offspring, is very unsettling smile, raised eyebrow, maybe even a lewd wink, good looking, pause for you to reflect and or puke. It was grotesque. This man was letting me know that he had this valuable thing that he assumed Michael Jackson wanted, and it happened to be his son, but it wasn't because of who his son was, it was because his son was good looking. Gross, 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 gross. These are the same people that call their kids heartbreakers when they're like infants. I hate hate that. Oh my god. So here was Dr. Chandler telling me how Michael was buying his kid computers and taking to all these incredible places and sleeping in the same bed and getting him, wait, what? I said, I have to interrupt here. Let's go back a tick here. And Chandler says, sure. They're sleeping in the same bed? And he blinks. Oh, yeah, but my, my ex-wife is always there, so it's okay. And his stepfather and, and, and trails off. So when Michael invited June's family on a trip to Monaco, this upset Evan, making him feel jealous and left out. And this would be the beginning of Evan's erratic behavior. This seemed to only get worse when in June 1993, Michael asked June if she and her family were interested in coming on tour with him. This did not help Evan's jealousy. And this seems to be the big triggering event for what happened next. Evan would turn to Michael and pressure him into funding a $20 million film project. $20 million. You just, who just asked someone for $20 million? I, yeah, the absolute fucking just entitlement and, oh my god. Bonkers. Um, so Michael had recently been given a $40 million, uh, $40 million by Sony to start his own film production company. Evan heard of this and wanted in, wanting half of the money claiming that Michael owed him for, quote, taking his son away. Michael's lawyers told Michael to not even consider it, recognizing this immediately as extortion. The way Evan framed it was that this film project would be a way for him to repair his relationship with his son, the one that Michael's presence had so damaged. Later that month at a graduation, Evan would confront June, claiming that he had suspicions that Michael and Jordan had an inappropriate relationship. June was incredulous. She thought the whole thing was baloney, says her ex-attorney Michael Freeman. She told Chandler that she planned to take her son out of, out of school that fall so he could accompany Jackson on the, the dangerous tour. Chandler became irate and, according to several other sources, threatened to go public with the evidence that he claimed he had on Jackson. June and her husband began to get concerned that he was going to do something, so they set up a, rec- a recorder to record calls with him just in case. On July 8, 1993, Evan called Dave Schwartz, June's husband, and they have a lengthy chat, which would end up being recorded. Some great Evan Chandler quotes here. So, quote, We were friends. I liked him and I respected him and everything else for what he, what he is. There was no reason why he had to stop calling me. I sat in the room one day and talked to Michael and told him exactly what I wanted out of the relationship. What I want. Oh, my God. When Swartz asked Jackson, or asked what Jackson had done to make Evan so upset, Chandler says, He broke up with the family. The boy has been seduced by this guy's power and money. 
then says, it's, al it's already set. There are other people involved that are waiting for my call that are in certain positions. I've paid them to do it. Everything's going according to a certain plan that isn't just mine. Once I make that phone call, this guy is going to destroy everybody in sight in any nasty, devious, cruel way that he can. And I've given him the full authority to do it. David Schwartz says, how does that help Jordan? And Evan yeah. says, that's irrelevant to me. Wow. Ding, ding, ding. He says, it's going to be bigger than all of us. The whole thing is going to crash down on everybody and destroy everybody in sight. It'll be a massacre if I don't get what I want. And they'll be destroyed forever. Holy June will lose fuck. custody of Jordan and Michael's career will be over. Holy fucking shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> The attorney I found, I picked the nastiest son of a bitch I could find. All he wants to do is get us out in the public as fast as he can, as big as he can, and humiliate as many people as he can. He's nasty, he's mean, he's very smart, and he's hungry for publicity. It's cost me thousands, tens of thousands of dollars to get the information I got. And I, you know, I don't have that kind of money. And I spent it, and I'm willing to spend more. Abe then asks Evan directly if he believes that Jackson is sexually abusing Jordan. And Evan says, I don't know, I have no idea. Wow. This is where the first allegations come from. So this attorney, this nasty, devious attorney that he's referring to is uh, Barry Rothman, who has a history of being a less than stellar human being, as you can imagine. So according to his credit profile, it lists more than 30 creditors and judgment holders who are chasing him. In addition, more than 20 civil lawsuits involving Rothman have been filed in Superior Court. Several complaints have been made to the Labor Commission, and disciplinary actions for three incidents have been taken against him by the State Bar of California. In 1992, just the year before this, he was suspended for a year, though the suspension was stayed and he was instead placed on, on probation for the term. By the time that he and Evan Chandler hooked up, Rothman was in desperate need of a large cash payout. So David Schwartz nationally took his, this recording to Michael and his PI and his team and everything. Um, and his PI, Anthony Pelicano, says, After listening to this tape for 10 minutes, I knew it was extortion. And that very same day, he drove to Jackson Century City Condominium, where Chandler's son and the, and the boy's half-sister were visiting. Without Jackson there, Pelicano made eye contact with the boy and asked him, he says, very pointed questions. He says, Has Michael ever touched you? Have you ever seen him naked in bed? And the answer to all the questions was no. The boy repeatedly denied that anything inappropriate had ever happened, and it's alleged that Jordan said that his dad just wanted money. Gross. The next step in Evan's big plan was to get the custody of his son. Evan asked June for a week visitation with Jordan, hoping that if he got to spend time with Jordan, it might appease him. June agreed, after Evan promised Jackson's lawyer that the boy would be returned. Evan swore that he would. Within a day of having Jordan, on July 13th, Evans served June with a document prepared by Rothman that would prevent her from taking Jordan out of the Los Angeles County, meaning that they wouldn't be able to go on tour with Jackson. June claims that she signed the document under duress, saying that Evans said that he would not return Jordan if she didn't. He didn't return Jordan regardless, and thus begins a bitter custody battle. My God. But it's important to note that Jordan at this point has never claimed that Michael Jackson has done anything to him. In the book All That Glitters, which was written by Evan's brother Raymond, with Evan's assistance, he states in there that he asked his son if anything had ever happened, and Jordan said no repeatedly, no matter what Evan threatens, even one time saying that he bugged Jordan's phone in room so he knew everything, and Jordan still denied this. And this is in Evan's own book. He's writing this. Oh my god. Yeah, because he thinks he's yeah. the good guy. 
fuck this guy. Mm-hmm. But this would all change on July 16th, after Evan put his son under sodium amytal for the unnecessary removal of a baby tooth. Shut up. So sodium amytal, if you don't know, was known as a truth serum at the time. <laughs> Which it's not. <laughs> but it's probably why uh, Evan used it. It can be found. It just makes someone really highly suggestible and has been found at the root of many false memory allegations. Strongly suspected this reputation is what caused Evan to turn to it, pulling a tooth as an excuse to administer the drug. Not only is this devious as all fucking hell, forcing your child to go through an unnecessary tooth removal so that you can drill him about potentially being sexually abused, which is all fucked up as is, but this drug is also incredibly dangerous. It fell out of favor as an anesthesia drug some time, and there were dozens of much safer and more effective drugs available. Sodium animal can have deadly side effects if not administered properly, or if the person turns out to be allergic. It's recommended to only be administered at a hospital with recessive equipment available. Devin had it administered to his son in his dental office. How much money would be incentive enough for you to put your child's at risk? Your life, his child's life at risk. Oh my god! Oh my god! So KCBS TV on May 3rd, 1994, would report that Evan had said that he used sodium amytal, but later he would claim it was another drug. Regardless, in Evan's book, while he does mention that the, he doesn't mention the name of the drug, he does say that his son was put under anesthesia, and this is the conversation that they had. He says, "I'm going to give you one last chance to save Michael. If you lie to me, I'm going to take him down in front of the whole world, and it'll be your fault because you're the person that could have saved him." This isn't about me finding out. It's about lying, and you know what's going to happen if you lie. So I'm going to make this easy for you. I'm only going to ask you one question. All you have to say is yes or no. That's it. Lie, and Michael goes down. Tell me the truth, and you can save him. Jordan, you won't hurt Michael? Promise you won't tell anyone? Evan, I swear, no one. Jordan, okay, what's the question? Evan, did Michael touch your privates? Jordan hesitates and quietly says yes. This is from Evan's book. Kids under anesthesia, and he's co- having a course of conversation with him. His own kid. Yeah. Wow. That yeah, father of the year. I mean, come on, right? Oh, like, he gets better. Trust me. <laughs> I already want to punt him off a cliff. I feel like so. he's, he's dead, so don't. So it's okay. <laughs> but... Oh, okay. Well. Maybe someone go kick his grave. I don't know. Jeez. Poop on it. <laughs> poop on it. Yeah. Just go take a yeah. fat shit on it. That's beautiful. That's the way, that's the way, uh, that's the way life was intended to be. You just take fat shits on people's grave whenever people's dead. <laughs> Evan says in his book that this was all he needed to hear. He hugged Jordan and then never talked about it again, saying the details didn't matter. So even if we completely remove the drug from, this ev- from evidence, because, you know, there has been Differing statements about which drug was used. Conversation alone is coercion is, and is completely against what, you know, police standards are for when interviewing children, especially in regards to sexual abuse. So you'd never ask leading conversations like that. And you'd never threaten somebody to get a confession. <laughs> so he'd repeatedly threaten Michael, saying if Jordan didn't tell him the truth, Michael would be destroyed. Dad wasn't letting up. What would you do if you were a 13-year-old and your dad kept dogging you about this? And threatened to ruin your friend's life. So, on July 27th, according to a diary by a former colleague of Barry Rothman, it's clear that Rothman was guiding Chandler in this plan. Quote, Rothman wrote a letter to Chandler advising him on how to report child sex abuse without, without liability to the parent. 
Rothman's secretary at the time, Geraldine Hughes, later said in an interview, I really believe that the whole thing was plotted and planned and the words were given to Jordan to say because I actually witnessed that 13-year-old in the attorney's office without any supervision of his parents and he was stuck there. And it was like no one in the office even knew he was there. He was behind closed doors with my attorney for several hours. And I kind of believe that that is where he was being told what to say. On August 4th, Evan and Jordan meet with Jackson and Palacano. Upon seeing Jackson, Evan greets him with a big warm hug, which is strange behavior if you think this man has been sexually abusing your child. <sighs> he then presents Jackson with a letter written by psychiatrist Mathis Abrams, who implies that a hypothetical child may be a victim of sexual abuse. The letter had been a response to Barry Rothman, who, posted a who would pose a hypothetical scenario about a young boy who spent a lot of time with a celebrity. So, it is said that Jordan's gaze shot up in horror, looking at Michael and immediately saying, I didn't say that. Evan concluded the meeting by telling Jackson, I'm going to ruin you. Wow. On August 13th, another meeting was held, this time at Rothman's office, and Jackson's team made a counteroffer to Evan's original demand of $20 million, or just the $20 million film dollar request, offering Stead to, pay, to give him $350,000, a screenwriting deal with hope that this could resolve the custody dispute and give Evan an opportunity to spend more time with his son by writing a screenplay together. This was shot down. Rothman instead asked for three screenplays, which Michael's team declines. On August 16th, June pulled Evan into an emergency custody hearing. In this custody hearing, Evan mentions nothing about suspicions of child abuse. It is decided the next day that Evan would return Jordan to June. You're trying to win custody of your child, you're about to bring up allegations of sexual abuse, but you're not going to bring it up in your custody hearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So reacting quickly, Evan immediately books an appointment with, for his son with Mathis Abrams, a psychiatrist whose letter was used to threaten Jackson. Abrams spends three hours with Jordan, and during that which he admits that Michael Jackson had inappropriately touched him, alleging most everything but penetration, which could have been verified by medical exam. As Abrams is a mandatory reporter... He had to report this accusation to the Department of Children's Services, who would then in turn contact the police and a full-blown investigation of Jackson would begin. This was strategic in many ways, but most importantly, if it was a doctor that reported it, Evan couldn't be sued for false allegations. And also, with a psychiatrist filing the report, Evan wouldn't have to return Jordan. Wow. Although, doc although Dr. Abrams duly reported the case, 10 years later, on December, December 12, 2003, when Abrams had been called for the second set of accusations, he told CBS News that he did not spend enough time with Jordan to conclude whether or not he was telling the truth. Quote, I think that this children's changing story is a possibility in both cases, that there could have been coaching, but again, I wasn't given the opportunity in the initial one to even try to find out. One thing that's important as well is like, okay, yeah, this guy's a mandatory reporter. But you know who else is a mandatory reporter? Dentists. Oh. In a month since Jordan has told him this and he hasn't said anything. I didn't even think about that. Oh my god. So on August Dentists are mandatory reporters. All medical professionals are. Wild. Right? So in an August nineteenth, nineteen ninety-three DCS report, June and her husband start to side with Evan. Quote, mother stated that if Jordan had said, said it, it must be true. She has since said that she was worried if she didn't, Evan would take her to court and sue her for negligence, blaming her for the alleged abuse that she let happen. Mm. On August 23rd. Which is already playing on her old Yeah, fears. it's like, yeah. he's already threatening to yeah. take away the child so she never sees him again. Wow. He's very determined to destroy Michael Jackson. And if he can wow, get Michael wow, Jackson wow. accused, oh, he could then destroy her. No problem. 
Yeah. On August 23rd, the first reports of these allegations were published and the media frenzy begins. Within 24 hours, the story was on 73 TV news broadcasts in LA alone. Everything was just rumor at this point until August 25th, when a person from the DCS leaked a copy of the abuse report. Diane Damien of Hard Copy, which is a salacious tabloid. Right, right. I remember okay. Hard Copy, yeah. Wow, like the rights violations there, right? Like, right to privacy, and like, did that person lose their job because they should have? I don't think they ever figured out who it was. I know there was an intense investigation uh, among those departments, but I don't. I, no, there's nothing public about if they figured out who it was. It's wow. a minor. It's yeah. Wow. Within hours. Uh, an LA office for a British newspaper was offering copies of this abuse report for $750 a pop. So, journalistic integrity went out the window. Newspapers featuring uh, anything to do with Michael Jackson sold like hotcakes, so no one cared what was true, just what sold. According to Conan Nolan, who is a KNBC reporter, he says, Competition among news organizations became so fierce, stories weren't being checked out. It was very unfortunate. Hmm. So reporting on Jackson has always very unfortunate. Very unfortunate. <laughs> very unfortunate. Yeah. Spilling a glass of milk is very unfortunate. <laughs> Forgetting where you left your car in a parking lot is very unfortunate. Not getting the lunch you wanted is very unfortunate. <laughs> a child's fucking privacy. Yeah. 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 Yep. Um, reporting on Jackson I'm is all so angry. <laughs> you should be. So this is a valid right I was very angry when I read about this stuff. <laughs> reporting on Jackson has always been profitable since his rise to fame, but this, these allegations are unlike anything else. Nothing had ever sold paper so fast. The National Enquirer put 20 reporters and editors on the story. One team knocked on over 500 doors in, Pren in Brentwood trying to find Evan and his son. Um, on turning the tables on the Chandlers.com, which is um, a Michael Jackson, Jackson investigative website, they posted a snippet from a conversation that they had in 2013 with a tabloid broker. Quote, the way I look at it, because of being in the tabloid business years ago, is if you don't see proof, it's probably not there. People will say anything about a celebrity to make money. I don't want to be involved in something that's false. I've met Michael Jackson a couple times, and the guy was not a child molester. I don't care what anyone says, and if they think that he is, they need to bring some kind of proof. Nobody has brought any kind of proof in all these years. Now, another thing we have to be aware of at this time is the time, because this was a time when child abuse accusations were running rampant. This is the last drudges of the satanic panic, which, a time of countless abuse allegations many later to found out then never actually occurred and were memories implanted through recovered memory exercises which had become very popular at this time and even some with sodium amytal at the, at the root of it mm -hmm. we also did not have a strong understanding of just how malleable and suggestive the mind of a child is you ask a child the same question enough times they will eventually change their answer thinking that the previous answer was wrong which led to a massive surge in sexual abuse allegations Police had told June that Jackson fit the classic profile of a child molester to a T. Quote, There's no such thing as a classic profile. They made a completely foolish and illogical error, says Dr. Ralph Underwager, a monopolist psychiatrist who has treated pedophiles and victims of incest since 1953. Jackson, he believes, got nailed because, quote, misconception that, like these that have been allowed to parade as fact in the era of hysteria. In truth, the U.S. Department of Health and, and Human Services study shows that many child 
child abuse allegations, and 48% of those filed in the 90s were proved to be proved to be unfounded. 48% in the 90s. Holy Jesus. According to Michael Borak, a forensic psychiatrist who has evaluated many pedophiles, Michael Jackson's eccentric behavior is not typical of most offenders. Most offenders are normal people who could just be a neighbor, not a freak, not freaky or weird. If you're a predator, you want to blend in. That's the easiest way to get close to children. Right, because then everyone is like, yeah, that guy is weird. Yeah. Don't let him near my kid. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Of course, any suspected scenario of child abuse absolutely should be investigated and taken seriously. You know, and the, uh, the behavior of abuse victims varies dramatically. So even if you ask a child directly, they may not tell you if they were abused, feeling scared or ashamed. But in particular, this was a time of so much anxiety as parents realized that maybe letting your children wander off unsupervised wasn't that great of an idea after all. There was an overcorrection and a hypervigilance, and this is the end of a time where something as innocuous as a game played with pencils and paper would lead children to worship the devil and make blood sacrifices. <laughs> I mean, they were half right. <laughs> we're all pagan now. <laughs> we were moving away from jumping at fantastical shadows, but we were still jumping. That anxiety just had moved to a new target, and that was people in positions of power. This would also be the time that the suppressed sexual abuse cases by members of the Catholic Church began to make news. Parents were scared, and they wanted to protect their children, so they consumed these stories as if somehow knowing the details, they could protect their children from it, or recognize when it was happening to them. But in turn, it also made them incredibly paranoid. Hmm. So things began to get really messy after this, but there's three basic things that you kind of need to understand about um, cases like this. Uh, now, of course, I'm not a fucking lawyer at all, believe it or not. Um, so I'm just basing this on what I've kind of researched in regards to this case. So my understanding may not be completely accurate. And maybe, or it could possibly be outdated because this information was from 93. But basically, criminal investigation. So as Jordan's report of abuse was escalated to the police, law enforcement must begin an investigation of the accusations. This happens regardless of whether or not the Chandlers choose to pursue legal action, which at this point they hadn't, as Evan was still trying to get Jackson to pay him under the table. If the statement finds, or if the state finds evidence to support the allegations, the DA could then bring the case before a grand jury in hopes of getting an indictment or bring a preliminary or bring a preliminary trial to the court to prove probable cause. So, if the Chandlers wanted to send Michael Jackson to prison, this is um, they should have gone for a criminal case. And the path, this is the path that you think that most anyone who thought that their children were being abused would likely go down, because this is this is this is against the law. <laughs> But there's two reasons that Evan wasn't rushing into a criminal case. Criminal cases are very thoroughly tried. All parties are investigated, and we already know that both Evan and Rothman had previous tangles with the law. And based on what he said in that phone call alone, it's almost guaranteed that in Evan's home office or at the lawyer's office, if they had been raided, there's likely something incriminating that would have been found. The other factor is there's no guarantee that you will get any money out of it, which is clearly what Evan is looking for. According to Evan's book, the reason he didn't pursue criminal trial was for Jordan, saying a criminal case would be drawn out forever, and he was worried that he would not achieve the 12 out of 12 jurors' votes required for guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. He believed that if it went to criminal case, Jackson's team would just pay off one of the jurors. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> it's reasonable for any parent to be concerned about the well-being of their child, but if he truly believed Jackson was a predator, and he had the evidence that he claimed that he did... By not bringing him to criminal, criminal court, he left him free to continue abusing other children. Evan also repeatedly says that he thought that law enforcement right. and the DA were too wimpy to take on Jackson, which is not true. 
The Santa Barbara DA, Tom Snedden, would become obsessed with trying to take Jackson down for the next 15 years. They wanted to destroy him, and, every, and they did things that were really unethical and borderline illegal to try and find evidence on him. Dang. So civil cases, on the other hand, is what happens when you sue someone. Usually they're intended for things like inheritance, divorce, divorce, child custody, or issues with contracts. Usually things that aren't straight up illegal or can be resolved with financial compensation. Civil cases tend to be more subjective and not as thoroughly tried, and only requiring 7 out of 12 jurors to convict. Also, civil cases usually result in the offending party paying damages. Yeah, the burden of proof is mm -hmm. different, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, on August 21st, 22nd, and 30th, the LAPD would search all of Jackson's residence while he was on tour on the other side of the world. Jackson was in Thailand for the first leg of his, his Eurasia, Eurasia and Latin American tour on the day that the allegations broke. So, he wasn't even in the country when the allegations broke. And prior to that, he had no knowledge that Jordan had made a report about him. He would have had no way to prepare his residences for search, and his staff attests that the raids were a complete surprise. The Los Angeles Times reports that on August 27th, the search warrant didn't result in anything that would support a criminal filing. A common misconception is that child porn was found at Neverland Ranch. This is not true. Jackson had a huge library estimated at 18,000 books, and that's just in his house. Apparently he had way more in storage. And it said that the officers reviewed every single one. It is said that there are three books out of that entire library that could be considered, quote, suspicious. They were artistic photographic books. Books that you could order on Amazon right now and have delivered to your house in a couple hours. One had pinups of men and women. You know, like boudoir kind of pinups. This one wasn't really that interested because it doesn't support the mm -hmm. narrative that Jackson's a boy lover. One was a gay BDSM pinup book, right. so not porn, just artistic depi depictions of BDSM lifestyle with all grown men. And the last were, was a general photography, photo photograph book by a famous photographer. This is the one that gets fixated on. Because in this book, there are a handful of images of boys in swim trunks, running around, having fun, jumping in the lakes, etc. I have these images to show you. This is the child support, uh, this is the child porn that everyone alleges existed in Neverland. There you go, guys. You child porn on your computer now. Oh. Clearly, right? Yeah. Like, there's one picture where it's artistic, but kind of like, eh. But it's not porn. And these are, like, multiple images taken from throughout the entire book. So it's not like the entire book is this. Yeah. <laughs> so. so Evan and Rothman were hoping that public pressure would be enough for Jackson to relent and just pay them off and make them go away. But instead, by late August, Jackson's team would file extortion charges against Evan and his lawyer Rothman. Investigation into this extortion allegations never received the same attention as the allegations against Jackson. No witnesses were ever subpoenaed. No search warrants were ever issued. Over the years, several parties would come forward to attest their recollections of the events that seemed to indicate that Evan was just in it for the money. Frank Cassio, who was a child at the time, he had met Jordan and his family, been very close with Michael, later says that when I was older, Michael would tell me that Jordy's father had wanted Michael to invest in a film he wanted to make. Michael initially liked the idea, but his advisors were against it. They dismissed Jordy's father rather thoughtlessly, and Michael, not one for confrontation, blew him off too. Michael thought that this, more than anything else, had set Evan Chandler off. An artist, David Nordahl, who at the time was working on projects for Jackson and was involved in Jackson's efforts to start that production company, Quote, Sony had given Jackson $40 million to start his production company, and that, little, and that little boy's dad, who considered himself to be show business material because he had written part of a script, being friends with Michael, and his son being friends with Michael, this guy assumed that Michael was going to make him a partner in the film production company. That's where the $20 million figure came from. He wanted half of the Sony money. 
Oh my God. June and her husband, Dave Schwartz, met with Jackson and his legal team early on to discuss what they thought Evan was up to. Schwartz, who had known Evan for almost 10 years and considered him a friend, said, well, it's Michael Jackson. I know Evan. It could be money. Oh, my God. Now, this is a quote from Evan's book. Why not pay Evan off and nip the nightmare in the bud while, you're get, while you get the opportunity, especially when you know your man's guilty sleeping with little boys? At least, not only do you avoid a civil suit, but also more important, you buy your way around the authorities by removing the star witness. $10-$20 million? Money's no object. I think this kind of gives you the idea of Evan's mindset. Right. Yeah. What a piece of shit. Because he really just wanted to be paid off. Dang. But yeah, happy to accept money in exchange for a silence about his child's alleged abuse. He's not wrong that Jackson had hundreds of opportunities to pay Evan off at any point. I mean, starting when he first started receiving threats from Evan in July. If I were a predator trying to hide my predatorialness, that seems like the wisest option, especially when you're Michael Jackson, you have all that fucking money, which is reported to have around 300 to 700 million at the time. <laughs> it wouldn't be much to buy your, you know, freedom in that scenario. Right. Yeah. But why go through all this? Jackson already had been crucified by the media for years. Elaborate stories spun from the smallest threads of truth are, or by nothing at all. Looking at Jackson's appearance alone, despite talking about his health issues publicly several times, the tabloids continue to run a myriad of outrageous stories. There's no doubt that Jackson and his team knew that if the media got wind of this, they would be like a dog with a bone. So if you were a predator, why risk it? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, if we look at Evan's side, who had just initiated a bitter custody battle and then alleged child abuse, this is a classic tactic used in these kinds of cases. The only difference being that not only would it help Evan win custody, but he would get an opportunity to extort Michael Jackson for millions. Remember that prior to Jackson being in Jordan's life, Evan had wanted almost nothing to do with him since he was five years old. He was also three years behind in child support, going about $70,000, and suddenly he's throwing tens of thousands of dollars, according to his own statements, at this and demanding custody. In the conversation with June's husband, when he asked if Evan planned to do to help Jordan, Evan said it's irrelevant, and repeatedly stressed that Michael could have resolved this at any time. So I can't get around the fact that Evan refused to get the police involved or bring his child to a psychiatrist until June took him to court and would regain custody of Jordan the next day. Evan was also a mandatory reporter, like I mentioned, because he's a medical professional, and he knew for a month, <laughs> and he didn't tell anybody. Yeah. He says that he did, the reason he didn't was because he promised Jordan that he wouldn't. I should also be no, it should also be noted that once Evan took Jordan and wouldn't give him back, he refused to allow June to speak to her son, and the few times that he, he did, it was with an audience. According to June's lawyer, June was convinced that Evan had brainwashed Jordan as her son went from aggressively denying any abuse at all to the point that he refused to call Evan on Father's Day because he kept repeatedly asking his father, he kept repeatedly asking, his father kept asking Jackson for money, and it was getting uncomfortable to be around him. So, like... He, Evan's constantly asking for money, like, deteriorated his relationship with his son so much that he didn't want to call him on Father's Day. Yeah. So, with Rothman having allegations of extortion against him, Evan had to find a new lawyer. I first hired Gloria Allred, who immediately went to work pushing a criminal case. But just as quickly, she was brought, she was brought on, she was swapped out for Larry Feldman, who would then push the civil trial. Strongly suspected that because she pushed a criminal case, that's the reason they got rid of her. Yeah. Larry Feldman would file a civil case against Jackson for damages of $30 million on September 14, 1993. The case was for sexual battery, seduction, willful misconduct, inten intentional infliction of emotional distress, and fraud and negligence. Jackson's team had no doubt that if the civil case went to court, they would win it without an issue. But it wasn't as simple as that. Jackson's team was waiting for the second shoe to drop, feeling like Evan would file a criminal case any day. 
There was a concern that if they fight the civil case first, the prosecution would then know their defense and could tailor their story accordingly. Some argue that there's no way they could even get an unbiased jury because the media was onslaught was rising and the opinion that Jackson was guilty was very prevalent. The division to settle, the decision to settle or not to settle tore Jackson's team apart, multiple lawyers fighting with each other on what was the right approach. This was also a huge case for them. Like, this case was ridiculous. Like, if you won this case, it would look great on your resume. Mm-hmm. If you lost mm-hmm. this case, it would look really bad on your resume. So, while his defense squabbled, Jackson's mental state deteriorated the toll of the pub- all the publicity and the heartbreak of a family that he once thought he'd been a part of, having turned on him in such a horrific way, did a complete number on him. The idea that he could hurt a child and that anyone would even believe that hurt him deeply, even spent having spent all those years doing everything he could to help children everywhere. It didn't seem to matter what he said, the press was a runaway train, and willing to throw thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, at anyone that had ever set foot on Neverland Ranch that was willing to say something about the King of Pop. So naturally, we get those disgruntled ex-employees showing up. Stella and Philip Lamarck, were Jackson's ex-housekeepers, tried to sell her story to tabloids, asking for as much as half a million dollars. But wound up selling an interview to the Globe of Britain for 15000 Oh, to the Globe. Great. <laughs> the Quindoys, which a Filipino couple that had worked at Neverland, followed. They then had an asking price of $100,000. They said, and then they... At the $100,000 price point, they said that the hand was outside the kid's pants. But a, a reporter notes that from uh, a producer from Flatline on, says that if you raise that price to $500,000, the hand would go outside of the pants. Or go inside and go inside of the pants. Oh my god. Wow. Oh. Right? <laughs> That's so yeah, that... Up. Oh my god. The, you know what? Just get rid of money. Just light it all on fire. <laughs> Let's do that. So the district attorney's office eventually concluded that neither of these couples could be used as witnesses. On December 1st, Hardline paid $100,000 to talk to five ex-security guards of Michael who were preparing a case for wrongful dismissal against their former employer. Diane Diamond alleges that the reason that they were fired was because they knew too much about Michael Jackson's strange relationship with the young boys. But this wasn't the case at all, as one of these guards would later testify in Jackson's defense. So in like 2005, Jackson's lawyer asks Morris Williams several questions under oath, which resulted in Williams confirming that he himself had never seen Jackson do anything inappropriate with Jordan or any other child, and the first time that he'd ever heard anything about this had come from the media. And then a maid, Blanca Francia, was paid $20,000 to tell Hardcopy that she had seen Michael taking showers and baths with young boys, even witnessed her own son in compromising positions with Jackson. Later, under deposition with Jackson's attorney in 2005, she admitted that she had never actually seen Jackson take a shower at all with anyone. Nor has she seen him naked with boys in a jacuzzi. They always had swim trunks on. Note that nearly all of these employees had been let go prior to Jordan and Jackson becoming friends. None of their stories were specifically about Jordan. But not all of the ex-employees were out to get Jackson. As this case went, to, as this case never went to trial, we don't have records of those depositions. Though some of these depositions were later used in further in later trials. Um, one of these depositions was Adrian McManus, who'd been Jackson's maid for the, his bedroom suite. And she said under oath that she trusted Jackson and she would leave her own son alone with him. And this is the guy that cleaned his fucking room. So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So while Jackson managed to get through this case, you know, it was taking a huge psychological toll on him. On November 12, 1993, his publicist announced that he was canceling the remainder of his tour and would go into a drug rehabilitation to treat, for treatment of addiction to painkillers. So in 1984, Jackson was doing a commercial for Pepsi when pyrotechnics accidentally set his hair on fire causing second-degree burns on his scalp. 
injury was very painful and left him with a large bald spot that he would then spend the next decade trying to fix with plastic surgery. The methods used were very fucking painful and didn't have the highest chances of success. But ever since then, he's been prescribed painkillers to cope with the after effects of the procedure. Quote, uh, or sorry, Debbie Rowe, which would later be his wife and mother of his first two children, but was also the uh, nurse, nurse to his dermatologist, said uh, that the issue was complicated and a very painful one. Quote, after the burn, Michael had a huge amount of scarring on the top of his head on the crown. Because he's black, he developed keloids. Keloids are extremely painful, thickening scars. He didn't want to wear hair paces anymore and he needed to have something done with the keloids. We were injecting them, with, which was extremely painful to have done. Ooh. Yeah. During the stress of the allegations, Jackson found himself turning to his painkillers more than he should have. Believed that he just was just trying to cope with everything, but unfortunately it led to addiction. Some of the Jackson camp said that he was barely able to function adequately on an intellectual level between the stress and the drugs. And this is one of the many reasons that they pushed to settle. His team worried that he was on the verge of complete self-destruction and wouldn't survive if he went to trial. Jackson had always been fragile. As much as he loved performing and loved, loved his fans, everything else about being the king of pop ground him down which is why Neverland Ranch was three hours outside of L.A. The criminal investigation would end up involving 12 detectives and the DAs of both Santa Barbara and L.A. counties. This would almost be impressive if the investigation had been so fucking ruthless. Tom Sned and the DA of Santa Barbara become obsessed with Neil and Jackson and pursue every lead with rabid determination for the next 15 years. Jordan's testimony was a key piece of evidence in this investigation. Their goal was to find additional victims willing to testify and find corroborating evidence that would support Jordan's story, and they were willing to do anything to get it. During the raid of Jackson's residence, while no evidence was found, they recovered Jackson's address book, and law enforcement questioned close to 30 children and their families, and not one person said anything untoward happened. Brett Barnes and Wade Robson said that they shared Jackson's bed, but that's as close to anything as salacious they could find. Among the many people that law enforcement spoke to was Corey Feldman, who had met Jackson in 1984 when he was 13 years old. And this is a quote from Corey from uh, an interview way later. But he says, in fact, if anyone wants to go back to 1993, when I was interviewed by the Santa Barbara Police Department, I sat there and I gave them the names. They're on record. They have all this information, but they, but they were scanning for Michael Jackson. All they cared about was trying to find something on Michael Jackson. Michael was innocent. And that was what the interview was about with the police in 1993. I told them, he is not the guy. And he said, well, maybe you just don't know your friend. And I said, no, I know the difference between pedophiles and somebody who's not a pedophile because I've been molested. Here's the names. Go and investigate. And Corey notes that his allegations were never investigated. I remember hearing about that. Yeah. This is ticking some memory boxes now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a quote for the Daily Telegraph. Many of the children that Jackson has befriended, including Home Alone star Macaulay Culkin, have, have been questioned by the police and have testified that their relationships were perfectly innocent. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of children have visited the star's home. The allegations center on the evidence of just one boy. The detectives also burnt with the same fever as their DA when hunting this case, and it's alleged that they lied to children to try to make them accuse Jackson. Some even seen they had naked pictures of these children to prove that it happened. This is ethical. <laughs> Several parents come for, uh, came forward to Jackson's lawyer and told him that the officers had told them unequivocally that their children had been molested, even if their children denied anything happened. They were trying that fucking hard for, what the? Damn. Any sort of admission. Quote, after millions of dollars were spent by prosecutors and police departments in two jurisdictions, after two grand juries questioned close to 200 witnesses, including 30 children who knew Michael Jackson, not a single cooperating witness could be found. Coming up empty, in the attempt to find any other credible victim, Snedden began to grasp at straws. Jordan's conversation with the psychiatrist where he alleged the abuse, he was asked to describe Jackson's genitalia. 
DA Thompson that in desperate for any evidence served Jackson with a warrant that required him to submit a full to a full body exam and have pictures taken to compare against the prescription. Jackson, who was fam was famously introverted and shy, compi complied with the request, wanting to show he had nothing to hide and wanted to cooperate in any way possible. So on December 20th, 1993, Jackson stripped down in a room full of detectives, a doctor, and a photographer. Every inch of his body was photographed, and at the end of the day, it was found that Jordan's description did not ma match Jackson's body. It's so That's humiliating. So humiliating. Wow. Super fucked up. Now, there's a couple things to do with this. First, Jordan said that Jackson was circumcised, which he wasn't. But Jordan also mentioned a very important detail, which was discolored patches on the skin. While he described it incorrectly, it brings up an important point. Over the years, the Jackson was accused of bleaching his skin, said to have hated being black, and wanted to become white. And there's no denying that Jackson's appearance did change. His skin did lighten. His nose and chin changed dramatically, and he admitted that he did get a job done to get a chin cleft. This was the 90s, which was the height of plastic surgery. Everyone in Hollywood was getting drastic features changed. But the nose situation was a little different, and he adamantly denied all allegations that he was ashamed of his race. In 1983, Jackson was diagnosed with discoid lupus erythematosus. Yes. I'm not a doctor. Which is an autoimmune disorder that causes the body to develop lesions, leaving behind brutal and discolored scars. So a famous subject of someone who has this is the musician Seal. So his face, that is, that is a result of this disorder. This disorder is very painful and makes your skin extremely sensitive to the sun exposure, which is why Jackson was always seen with a hat or an umbrella. In 1979, Jackson tripped during a routine and fell and broke his nose, and the initial surgery was reconstructive. But later, the lupus would destroy parts of the skin of his nose, and he had trouble breathing and singing. So he had another pr procedure to correct this. While the reasons for these nose jobs were medical, Jackson did take these opportunities to reshape his nose, and was elated with the fact that after the second surgery, he looked a lot less like his father. And, he, and his brothers used to make fun of him, yeah. Yeah, yeah. his dad and his, his dad and his brothers used to make fun of him. This is Jackson unaltered. After the first surgery, second surgery. Yeah. This is his father. Thank I mean, you. yeah. <laughs> so at the same time, he was also diagnosed with vitiligo, a condition which causes your skin to lose pigmentation and patches. These two conditions combined wreaked havoc on Jackson. Not only was he in constant pain, but it was dramatically beginning to change his appearance. Jackson was very sensitive about his appearance before, and this did not help. I've got a picture here of his vitiligo. You can see it on his arms quite clearly here. Over the years, he tried everything to cope with this, starting with makeup, but eventually turning towards specialized creams designed for vitiligo sufferers that lighten the skin pigment in an attempt to make this complexion, this complexion more even. Vitiligo tends to be most prominent on the face, hands, wrists, mouth, eyes, nostrils, and genitalia. Jordan's testimony did include mentions of discoloration, but his description did not match Jackson's body. You would think that this would be enough to make the testimony moot, but the DA argued that the vitiligo does change and advance, and that maybe his body had just changed since the abuse occurred, though it doesn't explain the circumcision aspect. Yeah, there, I don't think there's a... Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it just grew back. <laughs> yeah. It happened like that. So on December 22nd, 1993, Jackson gives a statement. Says, there have been many disgusting statements made recently concerning allegations of improper conduct on my part. These statements about me are totally false. I will say that I am particularly upset at ha the handling of this matter by the incredible, terrible mass media. At every opportunity, the media has dissected and manipulated these allegations to reach your own co conclusions. I ask all of you to wait to hear the truth before you label or condemn me. 
I have been forced to submit to a dehumanizing and humiliating examination by the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department and the Los Angeles Police Department earlier this week. It was the most humiliating ordeal of my life, one that no person should ever have to suffer. Even after experiencing the dignity of this search, the parties involved were still not satisfied. They wanted to take even more pictures. It was a nightmare, a horrifying nightmare. But if this is what I have to endure to prove my innocence, my complete innocence, so be it. Throughout my life, I have only tried to help thousands upon thousands of children to live happy lives. I'm not guilty of these allegations, but if I'm guilty of anything, it's of, it's of giving all that I have to give to children all over the world. It's of loving children of all ages and races. It's of gaining sheer joy from seeing children with their innocent, smiling faces. It's, it is of enjoying through them the childhood that I missed. So Tom Snedden needed enough evidence that could sway a grand jury to indict or could be deemed probable cause by a judge. Snedden would ultimately go before the grand jury twice choosing to not give the defense an opportunity to cross-examine the witnesses and avoid the spectacle of a public trial. Because of, the, of this, the testimonies given during these juries are not available for public record, though many have been brought up in trials since. Ultimately, on January 24, 1994, Jackson's team would push them to settle. The amounts given to the Chandlers were never made public, but it's commonly thought that Jordan received between 15 to $20 million and his parents received $2 million. All threats by the Chandlers against Jackson disappeared overnight, and while they could have still pursued a criminal case, they never did. The official settlement agreements say that Michael Jackson specifically disclaims any liability and denies any wrongful acts against the Chandlers. At another point, this civil statement explicitly says, for the alleged compensatory damages for alleged abuse, personal injuries arising out of the claims of negligence, and not for the claims of intentional or wrongful acts of sexual molestation. I mean, today I think this settlement was a terrible idea for two big reasons, the first being that it set precedence that Jack and Jackson was willing to cave under allegations and throw money at a problem, the second being that despite the settlement agreements clearly stating that the settlement was in no way an omission of guilt, the media spin for the next 30 years would be that Jackson paid the family off for their silence. Right. Right. Yeah, because payment yeah. just in people's mind is just like, oh, well, you wouldn't have, you would have gone to trial. You wouldn't have paid if you weren't guilty. Yeah, fuck. Yeah. And, but it's also like, you know, like, oh, well, this has been going on, it's been horrible, it's been destroying my life, it's destroying everyone, it's destroying Jordan's life. That poor kid. Yeah. Oh, God, I feel for that kid so much. <sighs> yeah, the results of the settlement are public. They were available. It's very easy to find out what occurred in the settlement that was agreed upon, but no one was interested in that resolution. It wasn't as exciting as the narrative that Jackson was actually a predator that used his money to get away with it. It did not help that the criminal investigation by the state was still ongoing when this happened, and new salacious rumors were coming out every day. And as with them was big payouts to whoever was willing to tell a story. In September 1994, the DA was forced to give up the investigation after a year of aggressive, sometimes unethical tactics to suss out any evidence. They had nothing, and Jordan Chandler refused to testify. Snedden closed the case, but promised that he would happily reopen it if Jordan ever changed his mind or anyone else came forward. Despite this announcement confirming nothing could be found, the papers didn't seem to care. The year-long battle was over, but... What no one yet realized that this was a war and this was only the beginning. So April 1st, 1994, Evan sells his half of his practice to a colleague, Gerald Mells. In May, after it was reported to the news that Evan had control of Jordan's money, suddenly plenty of ex-patients came forward, threatening malpractice suits and even one that claimed that Evan had sexually molested her while she was in his chair and she only recently recovered her memories. Oh my god. The irony is so fantastic. Wow. <laughs> the karma. The karma is real. Right. doesn't make up for the damage that was done, but it's still fucking funny. 
Um, now, you might think this is the end of Jordan Chandler's story, but it's not. A year after the settlement, Jordan emancipated himself from both parents at the age of 14. While he continued to live with Evan, in June's 2005 deposition, she reports that having not spoken to Evan or Jordan since the trial settled, and this was not by her choice. It's been 11 years since she'd, been, she'd spoken to her, her ex-husband or child because of this. When Evan's whole thing was like, oh, I'm trying to save him from this abuser. Uh. <laughs> On January 3rd, 1995, Natalie Chandler, Evan's second wife, would file for divorce. And later court claims she would say that after the settlement of the George Jackson case, her husband and Jordan just disappeared. He sold his practice, though her, he later alleges that he had plans to come back once things cooled down, but he never did. He left his wife standing with a $20,000 tax bill related to the sale of his practice. We know that... What a piece of shit. Right? <laughs> we know that two days after the settlement, Raymond Chandler, Evan's brother, began to shop around a story to publishers that would tell the story of the case and the allegations. Ray, being the writer, is important as... Part of the settlement Evan signed was that he was not allowed to talk about the details of the case for monetary reasons. Quote, Michael Jackson promises that he would never participate in, create, generate, implement, or otherwise cause there to be a commercial reference or exploitation of these events. I was like, you're allowed to talk about it, you're just not allowed to like, get paid for it kind of thing. <laughs> but yeah, if Ray Ghost wrote this story, it wouldn't be Evan writing it, so the book would, but the book, this book would not come out for another 10 years as no publisher wanted to touch it. But based on the contents of the book itself, it's very clear that a large percentage of the content came from Evan. There are several suggestions that when the settlement was made, Evan moved in with his brother to write the book. In the updated claims against her husband in 1998, Natalie would go on to tell how neither Jordan or Evan had been in touch with them since the case. Not even to Evan's own children. He had two other ones with her. He left her with $400,000 in legal fees and three years unpaid child support. Which obviously clearly has money because he just won it. And she claims that he was living off of Jordan's money. This would be bad enough, but she also claims that, Evan, that when Evan's own mother attempted to talk to her son about spending more time with his children, he flew into a rage and has not spoken to her since. Natalie alleges that this is a response to anyone that seems to challenge his lifestyle. And this is a quote from those documents. Evan is not a person who has a lot of friends. Since he decided to live with and off of his son Jordan, he has become either a nomad or a recluse. He does nothing to provide for his own living or that of his minor children. He apparently is satisfied to allow his 18-year-old son to support him and has purposely cut himself off from any other family member who disagrees with this behavior. Children kept asking the petitioner, which is wife, why he responded and their children and brother Jordan do not love them anymore and refuse to see them or talk to them when the children call. They haven't seen their father or their brother for an extremely long time for such young children. As a result of a respondent's deliberate and cruel abandonment of his two children, both children have been in therapy on a regular basis since 1997. And Nicholas now openly states that he does not want to have anything to do with his father and he does not trust his father anymore. Although custody and visitation are not an issue in this matter, the children's need for therapy has created a further need for financial assistance. If respondent does not, doesn't want to see or talk to his children, he should at least cover the expense of the therapy resulting from his blatant abandonment of them. Petitioner is well aware of the fact that the court cannot not order a respondent to love his children, nor can he order him to visit his children. The one thing this court can do is order the respondent to support his children, as outlined in the judgment. They should not have to live without while their father lives in the lap of luxury. I just can't imagine doing that. Just fucking off. No. <laughs> that, oh my god, what a freaking, I know people throw the word around, but what a freaking narcissist. Mm-hmm. Definitely. In 1996, Victor Gutierrez, uh, Gutierrez publishes the book, Michael Jackson my, Was My Lover, The Secret Diary of Jordan Channel, Ch Chandler. 
The contents depict very graphic sexual descriptions of a relationship between Jordan and Michael, as well as other boys that Michael was allegedly having relationships with. The book opens with, In the five months of their relationship, Michael Jackson and Jordy Chandler were happy. It was love. A hundred years, maybe such relationship will be accepted by society. You get the idea of the tone of this book. Oh, oh my god. The Chandlers have come out and say that Jordan never kept a diary. If they had, obviously, this would have been great evidence in their case. Um... But and Jordan has testified that none of the contents are true. The book has strong underlying tones of pro pedophilia, and it credits thanks to Nambla, North America man boy. Love oh, stop it! Oh, oh my god! Who the hell is Victor Gutierrez? Mm, 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 mm. Can we go back to talking about creepy wow. dolls? <laughs> can we? Can we go back? Mm, and is this mm, mm. fault? So. So Cardinal Gutierrez, he attended a 1986 NAMBLA conference. He says that while there, he overheard someone say how great it would be if Jackson was one of us. And maybe if he was, there would be acceptance of their, quote, lifestyle. And Gutierrez claims the thought inspired him and became obsessed with trying to prove Jackson was a pedophile. And then, quote, this is from a GQ article in which Gutierrez was interviewed for in 2006. It says, for the next five years, Gutierrez tracked down as many of Jackson's current and former associates as he could. Being Latino himself helped. It was relatively easy for him to strike up friendships with Jackson's El Salvadorian maid, uh, Blanca Francia, who left the Jackson's employment in 1991, and the star's Costa Rican PA, Orietta Murdoch, who sued him for unfair dismissal in 1992. So in 2005, many ex-employees of Jackson were called to testify, and a surprising amount admitted that they had spoken to Gutierrez before they went to the tabloids, and it strongly implied that the he'd coached them on what to say. So all these ex-employees that came out saying, oh yeah, we saw child abuse, talk to this fucker first. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. Gutierrez would also, over the years, claim multiple times of evidence that Jackson was a child molester, including photographs and videos. Though, when he was taken to court by Jackson, he admitted that no such thing existed. Jackson won a $2.7 million in this case, and said that he fled America to prevent having to pay this charge. Gutierrez would go on to try and run similar scams against a Chilean politician and his ex-wife. In 2008, he would be sentenced to 61 days in jail in order to pay approximately $60,000 to the ex-wife, which is the highest of damages ever awarded in a case like this in Chile. Pattern of behavior there. Wow. Anyways, if this is all Gutierrez did, you know, wouldn't be mentioning this, and, you know, he's a fucking trash human he being, but, and he's kind of a footnote to most of the story, but he's a consistent footnote that shows up forever from here on in. Like, people interview him for some reason. Like, whenever allegations or conversations about Jackson's guilt comes up, this fucker shows up. And he's not an actor, he's just a journalist. <laughs> he's got no creditations that would, like, be a reason to make him a valuable witness in any way. Wow. Anyways, families and, sorry? Wow. Just now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this guy is trash, but whatever. Until I came across about something really interesting. Families that know Jackson and have been photographed with him, including the Robsons, who would be featured in Leaving Neverland, claimed in 1992 that Victor had contacted them, telling them that he believed Jackson was a pedophile. All these families shut him down, but one may have taken that call. In 2005, 10 years after Gutierrez's book, Raymond Chandler, Evan Chandler's brother, publishes this book, All That Glitters, wherein he talks about the case and the events surrounding it. Evolutionary hell, in many cases, Evan undermines his own story by including stories like how Jordan first admitted his abuse under the influence of anesthetic and coercive questioning. But most shockingly, some of the events described sound eerily like some of the stories described in Gutierrez's book. Mm -hmm. Some almost word for word. 
Gutierrez's book, there are many claims that Evan said this, Evan said that, and included our photos and legal documents of drawings that Jordan's made of Jackson's genitalia that was never made public. Also, private home photos of Jordan. Gutierrez would have had to have gotten this from somewhere, and the duplication of events is far too prevalent and uncanny for it to be a coincidence. Now, the drawing has scribbles on the side, and among them is the name Orietta, who was a personal assistant that was fired by Jackson in 92, before Jordan would even have met Jackson. Gutierrez has boasted about refriending some of the ex-staff, including Orietta. So I want to take you back to the recording that Evan had from before the first trial. Where he says, it's already set. There are other people involved that are awaiting my phone call that are in certain positions. I've paid them to do it. Everything's going according to a plan and it just isn't just mine. And a couple of the quotes from there. This guy will certainly get it. That's the next step. And you want to know something? I have somebody after him if he doesn't. But I don't want, and there's a tape malfunction. He's like, I'm not kidding. I mean what I told you before. And then there were other people involved that are waiting for my phone call that aren't intentionally going to be uncertain. I paid them to do it. They're doing their job. I gotta just get ahead and and full follow through with the time zone. My instructions were to kill and destroy tape irregularity. I'm telling you, I mean, and by killing and destroying, I mean going to torture them, Dave. We know that Evan hired the attorney Barry Rothman, but this implies that multiple people were involved in this plan. Turning the tables on the Chandlers.com post snippets of a conversation for the two, in 2013 with a tabloid broker. The broker says, you asked about the Chandlers and the problem that came in the lawsuit with the Chandlers was when they cooperated with Gutierrez. That's how Michael was able to sue because they had a non-disclosure. And once Evan Chandler started cooperating with Victor Gutierrez, that put him in violation of that non-disclosure. So clearly these two are in contact. Mm -hmm. During the 1993 trial, an alleged victim comes forward to a journalist. The kid lives in Canada. So the journalist travels to Toronto to question this boy. First, this boy's conversation, his story is very thorough. He's able to ask all these questions about Neverland and identify pictures of staff. Um, so the journalist takes him to the police station to file a complaint. But while under review by the police there, he caves and admits that he made the whole thing up and has never even met Michael Jackson. From the kid tells them about a man named Rodney Allen. They track down Rodney Allen and he readily admits that he's the one that told the kid what to say. Guess where Rodney Allen is today? Jail. Yes, for a life sentence of pedophilia. I was gonna say. <laughs> it's always fucking. Mm. Might seem disconnected, but wait. Because <laughs> this gets really fucking bonkers. Several years after, a blog post was published, which is a letter direct, direct, uh, directed at Jackson apologizing for all that was said and how horrible the writer felt. It was later confirmed via letter exchange that this post had been written by Rodney Allen. But not just that, he admitted that the whole reason he did this whole thing was because Gutierrez and Evan Chandler had promised to pay him if he could help with their case against Jackson. Then they never paid. Oh, he fucking shit nuggets. If this is true, that means Evan was working with this motherfucker in an attempt to frame Jackson. We already know that Gutierrez was reaching out to friends of the Jacksons, so it's entirely possible that he is one of the people he reached out to Evan, as Jordan was photographed several times with Jackson, and may even be the one that put the idea of Jackson abusing his son in his head. Gutierrez was a journalist with tabloid contacts and connections to Jackson's ex-staff, who encouraged the staff to go to the tabloids. Gutierrez also has connection with pedophilia circles, so he and Evan allegedly hired a now-convicted pedophile, Rodney Allen, to fabricate another victim. God damn it. We know that Evan had wanted to write a book, but couldn't with the gag order. But lo and behold, Gutierrez publishes a book the next year with several seconds that are now almost exactly the same as the book that Evan would later write with his brother. 
Not long after Dave, Sh uh, not long after the settlement, Dave Schwartz June's husband would take Evan to court. In this um, case, June makes this declaration. I suspect the defendant has either influenced or been instrumental in keeping alive the public's interest in our lives, much to my dismay and consternation. I believe that he or those acting on his behalf have been continually providing the media with information regarding my son, myself, and the defendant. In particular, defendant and his brother have authored a book regarding our ordeal. While they have purportedly agreed to refrain from publishing the book, they have nonetheless advised me that the transcript mysteriously disappeared from the defendant's home. At the same time, a National Enquirer reporter that had been hounding me has suddenly revealed that he has the manuscript. So yeah, June says that she was told, and this is like, I believe this is like within a couple months after the settlement, um, that they had a manuscript already and then it disappeared. Oh. Which is very convenient if you want to sell it to somebody or give it to somebody and not want your name attached to it. In 2004, something must have soured between Evan and Gutierrez, as Evan's brother called Gutierrez a sleazebag and stated that he did not endorse his book. Now, this is eight years after it was published. Now, in August 2004, the Chandler book, All the Glitters, is published. So after the settlement was reached, Evan went after Jackson again in 95, claiming that his album History broke the agreement they made not to talk about the settlement. He sought $60 million and permission to make his own music album titled Evan's Story. You can't make this shit up. The case naturally got tossed, but it shows that Evan wasn't done with Jackson. Fuck. And so he claims that in his statement that um, he left his LA dental practice, turning it over, and plans to re he planned to return after some quiet relaxation. He provides a letter. He claims that he sent his patients where he says that he's going to return. But then in spring 1995, when Evan decides to go back, he learns of Jackson's upcoming press circuit and decided to wait to see what happened. And after he had an interview with Diane Sawyer, where he claims that um, Michael was asked about the case where he says, I'm innocent, nothing connected me to it. I can't talk anymore about it, basically, is what he said. So Evan claims that he received an increased number in intensity of death threats and harassments against him. He claims the program made it impossible for him to return to his professional practice or normal life. Didn't want to conduct a practice that would expose both him and his patients to risk. Uh-huh. He gave me $60 million. Multiple mm -hmm. filings um, related to this were filed and like at one point Jordan filed one too and you know defense tried to say that it should be consolidated but ultimately they were all just thrown out. In 2003 the next set of allegations would begin and would go to trial in 2004-2005. Prosecution made a motion that they could bring in previous bad acts, evidence in the case that meaning that they could take evidence and testimony from 1993 and use it in 2005. This motion was approved, and in September 2004, prosecution sought out Jordan Chandler, who refused to testify and said if they tried to make him, he'd legally fight it. It's alleged that he left the country to avoid testifying. Holy fuck. Now, like I said before, Jordan's mother mentions at this point that she hasn't seen Evan or Jordan for 11 years. Wow. So they, uh, they allowed the previous bad acts? That seems real. Yeah. Sketch. Yeah. Yeah, and Tom Snedden, the guy that, like, the DA, um, that was... After something, he's the one that increased the uh, statute of limitations on which child can, child abusers or child that were abused can report their <laughs> their abuse in like '95 because of this. And yeah, no, he's too wimpy to yeah. take on Jackson. <laughs> like he made it possible for it to keep going. Now, June 13th, 2005, Jackson is acquitted of all 14 charges. You would think that's the end. Not even a month later, Jordan on July 6th. As his father attempted to choke him, spray him in the eyes with mace or pepper spray, and had struck him in the head with a dumbbell. So, quote, he struck Jordan on the head from behind with a 12 and a one half pound weight, then sprayed his eyes with mace or pepper spray and tried to choke him. A judge later found that the weight could have caused serious bodily injury or death. Oh. Evan was 
Beverly was originally charged with two counts of aggravated assault with serious, serious bodily injury, unlawful possession of a weapon, and possession of weapons for unlawful purposes. Charges were later dropped to two counts of simple assault and harassment. 18 days later, Evan files a lawsuit against Jordan, which had to do with Jordan's trust fund from the original settlements. The case was dismissed with prejudices in 2007, and there's not really many, much information about it, but I can't get more money from Jackson. I'm going to get money from my own son. Own son. Who's, mo- who's money? And my son was unwilling to like testify right. in this case where we could have got more money. What a scumbag. Right. So on August 5th, Jordan would receive a temporary restraining order from his father, though his request to fi- for a final restraining order would be dismissed. At the time of the attack, father and son were living together in New Jersey, but they clearly went their separate ways after that. Jackson would pass away on June 25th, 2009. And on November 5th, 2009, Evan would take his own life. What? Jesus. So Evan Chandler's will says that um, he names a friend, Alan Margulis, as the executor of state, leaving him all, any and all assets, along with and all awards and or settlements received by his estate. Chandler specifically names two lawsuits involving Novartis uh, Pharmaceuticals and his physicians who prescribed him cancer treatment drug, Zomedia and Aurelia, for which he had suffered side effects. So it was alleged that he did have cancer at this time. And he says, I direct that I be cremated and no family or next that can be advised of my death. What the fuck? Then, for reasons best known between us, I purposely make no provisions in this, my last will and testament for any of my children or their issue. He says that no next of kin be granted or given any powers over my estate or my remains. Petty son of a bitch. What a cunt. Yeah. Yeah. To sum this up, to humiliate Jackson and get money, Evan kidnaps, drugs his own child with a dangerous anesthetic, and coerces him into admitting he's been abused puts into the whole fucking media circus of all that and being interviewed by psychiatrists and the police nonstop. And instead of going to the police, he, tax, he, he takes Jackson to civil court, he teams up with a morally bankrupt lawyer, connects with a pedophile to help drum up corroborating ex- ev- uh, evidence, including en- and encouraging Jackson's ex-employees to go to the tabloids with stir- stories that they would later admit were completely fabricated and encouraged by the pedophile in question, and hiring another pedophile to fabricate a victim. When that fails, Evan is forced to agree to Jackson's settlement as the rabid DA had not found one shred of evidence. When no publisher was willing to risk publishing Chandler's versions of events, his co-conspirator pedophile writes a horrific and grotesque book that romanticizes the child sexual abuse about Evan's own son with portions that appear to have come from Chandler's themselves. When that didn't work out, Evan goes after Jackson for breaking his agreement to make revenue off speaking about the case, which then gets thrown out. Evan would then publish his own story with his brother as a ghostwriter. When Jordan gets another chance to testify against Jackson in 2004, he refuses. And not even a month after Jackson's acquittal, Evan beats the shit out of his son, triggering him to file a restraining order against him to then end his own life five months after Jackson's death, penniless and estranged from his entire family. Wow. He ruined the lives of dozens, maybe hundreds, of, as every case is the found, after this uses this as its foundation. And many elements of the story that James Safechuck and Wade uh, Robson would use in Finding Neverland seem to be lifted directly from Gutierrez's book. Shut up. And most importantly, he ruined his son's life, who will spend the rest of his life dodging reporters and fleeing the country every time some asshole decides to take a jab at Jackson's estate. That poor guy. Ruined Jordan's relationship with his hero and drags his son through the mud for his own personal gain. Even turning his mother to his side, causing Jordan to feel like he has to relinquish both of those relationships for good. Safechuck and Robson would file their cases in 2013, and they too sought out Jordan to um, testify in these cases. He refused. 
his lawyer, the lawyers apparently chased them down at one point and he left the country and they then tried to go after his sister and wife. Holy fuck. It was also sought out by the document, doc documentary, but again, refused to participate. So doesn't stop them from using him in the documentary and saying that, oh yeah, he's another one of the victims, right. definitely. Right. Oh, that poor guy. My God. Right? I feel for him so Ugh. much. So what was Evan's deal? You know, it's hard to say, though many reported that Evan had serious anger issues. It's believed that is why both June and his second wife divorced him. Evan also would punch, uh, Evan, Evan also punched Dave Swartz, June's second husband, in September 1993 while discussing the lawsuit against Jackson and June's lawyer. Swartz would later file a lawsuit against Evan in which he mentioned his previous physical encounters with Evan. In 1994 deposition, June would also mention an incident where an argument happened <clears> between <throat> Evan and his second wife, Natalie, who was pregnant with their child, like three months pregnant, and the, the argument became physical. Oh. After Evan's death, reporter Diane Diamond, um, who was described in Evan's book as his closest ally, the tabloid reporter, um, would claim that Evan had bipolar disorder. He was known to be explosively jealous and claimed that every woman he'd ever dated had cheated on him and had his obsession with people lying to him, always thinking people were lying when they didn't tell the truth that he wanted to hear. We noted that like Jordan, when Evan left his second wife, he seemed to have no interest in their kids either. Thankfully, they seem to have never befriended any celebrities, so they managed to stay away from him. At the time of his death, Evan was alone and having burnt every other bridge that he had. And then a quote says, A relative said that Evan began to develop tremendous mood swings. He was always depressed. He stopped coming to family events because he was afraid of being recognized. And that turned into permanent estrangement. But there are some... Good news, I suppose. Our last update from Jordan comes from early 2000s. Josephine Zoni is in a, was attending NYU for music business. During an icebreaker event, a man comes up to her and compliments her Michael Jackson tour shirt. She would later find out this man was Jordan Chandler. Over the years, they were mostly acquaintances, but Josephine does say that Jordan once told her that he had poor relationship with his parents, claiming that he felt that they'd used him. Jordan was going to school for music and was always seen with his guitar. He said that he liked to write R pop R&B music like Michael Jackson. As Jordan had been a minor when he made his allegations, his name wasn't public, so no one knew who he was. Josephine eventually figured it out, but never confronted him about it, not wanting to re-traumatize him. Josephine recalls in 2003 when a controversial documentary titled Living with Michael Jackson aired, it reignited interest in the 93 allegations. She was having a discussion with some friends about Jackson's guilt. Most of, it were, most of them were certain that he was guilty, and Josephine said that she thought otherwise. And Jordan Chandler had overheard the conversation, chimed in that he didn't think Jackson was capable of doing anything like that. Josephine reports hearing Jordan say similar things over the next couple months. Josephine eventually loses touch with Jordan after school. So little is known about what happened to Jordan after this, other than the fact that we know that people keep trying to hunt him down. But it's alleged he's going under a different name now and seems to be doing well. And he may even have reconnected with his mom. That's good. Gosh. Especially going through all that. Oh, my God. Hmm. <laughs> that is the uh, first case against Michael Jackson. And everything else is based on that. The next family is a family of grifters, which, Holly, you would fucking love. Oh, God. <laughs> They go to JCPenney, the son steals something, runs out, the family runs yep. out after him. Security thinks the mom stole it, so they, like, you know, grab her and then, like, kick her out kind of thing. She opens a case against them, alleges that they are physically abusing her. Right. When they get to court, she then alleges instead that they sexually abused her. Oh, my God! During her statement, she talks about how wonderful her husband is, because she, she has, um, had bruises on her body and stuff and claimed that it was from the security guards, and there's no way that her loving, amazing husband could ever do that to her. They win the case. They, they JCPenney just decides to settle because fuck this nonsense. Mm -hmm. And like 
a month or so later, she opens a case against her husband and says that he's abusing her, has her children corroborate that. <sighs> they win his, the amount of money he got from the settlement. Damn. After that, well, her son gets diagnosed with cancer and wow. she um, reaches out to newspapers to uh, get them to crowdfunding for her to pay for his treatment. Right. But his treatment's being entirely paid for by an insurance company. God. Becoming friends with Michael Jackson. And Michael Jackson feels really uncertain about it. The first night that, the, that they claim that the abuse happens, um, there's multiple testimonies saying that basically the kid wanted to sleep in Jackson's room. And Jackson's like, I don't know about that. Like, he's getting a really bad feeling about the situation. And um, he's like, you got to talk to your mom. And his mom's like, oh, yeah, no, totally. Go ahead, dude. And he's like, I don't know. And then, like, wow. Jackson's like, okay. And, like, Frank Cassio, who was, who was a child that... That like grew up with Neverland essentially, who then became like his personal assistant, was there, and he's like, "Okay, we're doing this. You're sleeping in the room with me, and you guys are taking the bed, talking to the family's kids, which is that's what they did to make sure that they would not try to allege anything, because he had witnesses this time, because mm-hmm. he was not fucking falling for that shit again." And go on to claim that like, "Oh, he held them prisoner." Oh my god! <laughs> in their estate, though, there's cases of them going out and getting body waxes and. Shit. It's ridiculous. The thing does get eventually completely thrown out, but it is a fucking shit show and goes on for over a year. Jeez. Okay. Safe Jack and Bob's and stories change all the time. Okay. I have questions now. All right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's definitely like I was like, oh my God, there's so much here. Yeah. Like, I can't say with certainty that he's absolutely innocent. No way. There's no way I can say that. Yeah, he's definitely a weird fucking dude. Right. But every testimony that we have it was against him has been thrown out mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we have so many testimonies for him and it's alleged that on average uh sexual like a child molester will have 250 victims hey, hey. we've had four excuse me over the last 30 years yeah that's the we look at 250 200 oh my god okay yeah and like we look at cases like you know, Bill Cosby and, like, Weinstein or Epstein and stuff, as soon as one person came forward, dozens of people came forward, right? right. This didn't happen here. The only people that came forward were, were, like, people that were already had grievances with Michael Jackson because of their ex-employees or were hired by a pedophile. God, that just... With um, Robson and Safe Drugs cases... They, a lot of their story information contradicts, like, there's, like, oh, this abuse happened here all the time. I remember that place wasn't built for another five years kind of thing. Like, their timeline's completely fucked. Their details yeah. are not consistent. And it was thought that their whole plan was that um, to make their claims as outrageous as possible so the Jackson, fam- the Jackson estate would just settle and not go to court, which obviously did not work. <laughs> and so when their cases got thrown out, they've been repeatedly thrown out over the years, they made a documentary instead. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Robson was bankrupt at the time that he made his allegations. How fucking convenient. Jackson Estate had refused to hire him for their Cirque du show. Oh. He's a a choreographer. Yeah, so they have plenty of reasons to turn against Jackson and try and get that money, and their story has so many holes in it. Mm. Ta-da! Wow. Yeah, so now you guys are stuck with this knowledge too and have to deal with the fact that everyone else thinks otherwise. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. It, it cool. is kind of just, you know, we were so young when so much mm-hmm. of that went down and 
looking at it now, given, you know, just life experience and, and better understanding of it, how to do what you did and like fucking read court transcripts and do all of that, you know, it's, it's, it really is kind of brain breaking in a way to have your, um, supposed reality rearranged like that. Yeah, it's, it's been so wild for me just like, this is what everyone believes. This is what we all accept as common truth. Maybe not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely made me question a lot of things. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, I've got a cute story from one of the families that he used to hang out with. It was from the mom. He was wonderful. He treat, we, tre we treated him as part of our family. Jackson grew so fond of the family, he occasionally spent Christmas and other holidays with them, including one Halloween where he dressed up with the children wearing blue scrubs and a surgical mask. He says, I love to trick or treat. I love dressing up like some kind of monster and knocking on doors because nobody knows it's me and I get candy. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's so cute. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> talking oh, your ear shoot. off about Jackson. <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's good. I... It that uh that that feels like it's it's ripe for someone to really go full investigative journalist on it and try to get their hands on some of this stuff way yeah. like i said that podcast that i mentioned case for innocence is okay. really fucking good like it's so thorough i definitely recommend yeah. that if you want to know more about it <laughs> freya's trying to steal mm -hmm. her toys back now mom how could you that's it for this week. Hopefully this topic made you rethink some of the things that we just accept as truth because of public narrative and pursue some of your own research. I can't recommend the Michael Jackson case for innocence podcast enough, um, which there will be a link in the description. But I also came across an interview led by Charles Thompson, an award-winning investigative journalist who is one of the most knowledgeable individuals about the Jackson allegations. He interviews Brett Barnes, one of the many people whose family befriended Jackson when he was a child. When Brett met Jackson, he was five years old, and he was close to Jackson from 1987 up until his death, and he's always defended him. Brett has mostly stayed out of the spotlight due to the harassment that he received for defending Jackson, and hasn't done an interview since 1993 when he first commented on the Chandler allegations with his family. But with the release of Leaving Neverland, in which Wade Robson and James Safetruck used Brett as a keystone on their allegation, Brett feels it's important to come out and give his side of the story. The interview is very thorough. Charles Thompson asks every question you can imagine and provides a very unique insight of someone that had been close to Jackson through all of this. It is heart-wrenching, but also incredibly important if you want the other side to the Leaving Neverland story. Link will be in the description. Next week, we're back for episode 100. We will be doing a very special recording of our final reading of My Immortals, so get excited. As always, links, pictures, and additional information can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. To keep up with all things exceptional, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at The Human Exception. If a story you want us to cover, want to tell us that we're wrong, or you just want to say hi, you can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And to get on the fun, come join us on our Discord server. Link can be found on our contact page. Keep on being exceptional, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend.